I'm Jamie Burks with the Capacity Building Center for States, co-host of A Look Inside Sharing Power and Child Welfare, a podcast series by and about people with lived experience in child welfare and about their partnerships with leaders within child welfare agencies, partnerships that are aimed at improving child welfare systems. You're about to hear the second half of my co-host, Tony Parsons, conversation with a young adult leader and an agency leader from Nevada. So if you didn't hear the first half, listen to episode two and then circle back. So here's Tony and his guests. Hello, everybody. My name is Tony Parsons. I am a uh, young adult consultant with the Capacity Building Center for States, and I will be your host for this afternoon or this morning or whenever you're listening. Welcome and join. Thank you for joining us. I'm Judy Tudor. I am a, an assistant director for Department of Family Services in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm Madison Sandoval-Lund. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the Family and Youth Empowerment Program Area Manager at the Capacity Building Center for States. I want to shift the discussion just a little bit, you know, to talk about a population that we kind of ignore is not the right word, but we don't really think about them uh, when we talk about sharing power. And I, that's really the, the, the families, like the, the parents, right? Biological, birth, um, resource, foster, whatever term you want to use for them. What considerations should agencies be taking, people who are doing this work really be taking when it comes to sharing power with them, right? I think that we talk a lot about sharing power with young people. Um, you know, there's the, um, what is it, Wong typology pyramid, for example, when it comes to sharing power with youth. But what does that need to look like when we're dealing with parents or families more generally? What does that, what, what does that look like? What does that need to look like for that to be successful? I think in a lot of ways, and I like what you said, Tony, about the idea of trust and how um, trust is definitely needed and developed through power sharing. And when you, when you have that trust, I think that is when you can move to innovation. And so to me, that, you know, that's a powerful piece of what happens when you are power sharing. And I, I would say similarly for our work with parents, um, as I mentioned, it really does have to be a philosophy if you are working with parents and you don't honor the expertise that they bring to the knowledge about their family, the knowledge about their children, the knowledge about their experience, then you're you're really not going to get anywhere. You're not going to ultimately you may get you may address some surface symptoms, but you are not going to ultimately get to a space where I can tell you what's really going on that can affect lasting change. And, um, and and a lot of that is intentionally building trust because trust I think is something that can, that can just happen over a period of time of people just being consistently and, and showing up. But I, I think there is also a way to be intentional about what are the things that I need to do? What is the behavior I need to exhibit to establish trust? And I think it's honestly a challenge um, in, in child welfare because uh, oftentimes we are stretched so thin, we're not able to do the behaviors that really instill trust. So if you call me and I don't have the information you're asking for, instead of calling you back and saying, I got your call, I'm not sure, I'm working on it, they just don't call back until they have the information. And then a parent walks away from that interaction feeling like I'm not heard, I'm not listened to, they're not responsive, 
They don't care about what is going on. And the same thing can happen in those partnerships with parents when we're inviting them um, to the table to share their um, experiences and to share information with us that can help us grow as a system. Sometimes I, I think it, it can be overwhelming um, because we think, well, yeah, I mean, that would be great. We'd all like to do that, but how is that gonna happen, right? And so rather than responding to it or figuring out how we move things forward, people can like shut down, right? Instead of really uh, allowing people to feel heard and try and look like, okay, we may not be able to, you know, achieve the ultimate vision, but what are the steps that we can agree to take to continue to march um, in that direction? But I think a lot of it is, is similar to how we engage with young people is about intentionally uh, developing the trust that it will take to uh, create those relationships where people feel like, again, it is authentic in um, the power sharing that is happening and that they are heard and that we are following through with the things that we um, have heard and that we are giving them an equal space at the table uh, and not just, you know, because I, I think for me, always the concern when we talk about really engaging folks with lived experience, whether that be young people or families, is tokenizing that we have them at the table to check a box to say we have people at the table, but are we really doing that intentional work to develop the trust to have that consistency and to do the follow through that's that's necessary and to be ready to hear, right? And to be ready to allow them to use the power that they are bringing to the, the situation. Madison, do you have anything you wanna add about like work with families or anything like that? Or, or do you think, I mean, I think Judy did a fantastic job, but I'm curious from your vantage point, kind of having to provide technical assistance to probably a lot of people, a lot of states, organizations. What, is, what have you seen? What have you noticed? Well, I think it's when you're thinking about sharing power with families, whether it's at the systems level or case level or peer level, I think Ms. Judy covered a lot of the case um, level kind of engagement um, and trust building. But I'm thinking about if I'm sharing power with someone as a paid professional or as a consultant, those are there are the many different ways that we might be thinking about sharing power with like families, whether they're serving as advisors or what have you. But I think that different family groups have different needs. And from my experience, working with foster and adoptive parents is around understanding that they are volunteering their time, their home. And oftentimes they, they jump through a lot of barriers, real or perceived barriers when they're working with systems to be able to even help um, to open up a home, to like receive children, right? Um, and for good reasons, because we wanna make sure that these children are entering safe homes and we're taking them away. Like if we're removing children from what's perceived to be unsafe families. And so there's a unique dynamic there around kind of the voluntary nature of how one is engaging with the system. Whereas when I think about working with birth families or birth parents, it's completely involuntary. They did not ask for this. They did not want this. They do not want to lose their children. No one likes to be, um, you know, like uh, forced into compliance, right? 
or police and how they're like, you know, so there's like all of those dynamics, those like, that exist. And so even when I'm thinking about engaging a person who is um, a parent of a child who's in the system, um, I have to be mindful of that, right? And that differs from how I engage between a birth parent and a foster and adoptive parent and really understanding kind of their the nature of how they're involved with the system. And then with kinship families, that's a whole nother situation, which is both voluntary and involuntary in that a lot of kinship families are caring for children on their own without any type of assistance with the child welfare agency, but often have to engage the child welfare agency because they need resources. And it's because it's hard for them to get resources. And yet they experience all the stigmas that birth parents get, um, and they get all the barriers that foster and adoptive parents experience in even licensing their homes. And for me, understanding those dynamics helps me kind of respond maybe more appropriately and kind of tailor how I might be engaging with a person um, and how I might be talking to them about these unique experiences. And so when we lump families together or parents or caregivers together, we're not acknowledging the unique and distinct challenges that they experience that is very different from like a child or a young person who's growing up in the system which is another power differential of like, they have the least amount of power because they're not adults, right? They don't get to decide who they live with. And, you know, on the whole, and trauma is constantly in many ways being done to them, right? Not, it's not, it's not them who's doing it, you know? So I think all about all of those considerations and, um, and I think a lot of it at the basic core principle is like meeting people where they're at. Um, even if, they perceive you as an adversary, even if they perceive you as the villain, right? Because that's that's stuff that they, and through relationship building, every opportunity is an opportunity for potential repair, potential healing, and just like the process of learning and unlearning because what might work for one person will not work for another person. And so I think our people who are our frontline workers and the people who are doing the work have the hardest job. They are the most skillful people. They're doing this well. They're like having to tailor every approach to every like person. Um, and so I think it's just being mindful that it's gonna take time. So I think it's important for people not to hold any like bias or beliefs that they have about these different populations and just meet the person where they're at. And like, if a person tells you who they are, believe them, not what you are trying to place a template on top of them because you've worked with hundreds of family and you're an expert. And I think that that's when it creates these like issues because um, trying to put people into the boxes that you think that they should be in rather than having them tell you where they kind of fit. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I, I really appreciate you breaking down like the different considerations between like a biological family, a kinship family. Like, I think you're right. I think without having some of that textual knowledge, not just for them, but in general, I think that people kind of do this, I don't want to say wrong, but can do more harm than they might be imagining if they're doing. And so I do appreciate that you, that you kind of draw that, through that out. Um, and I kind of want to kind of dig a little bit deeper about that. Um, what advice would you guys give to people who say, because I can already hear someone in the comments, if this is a lot comments, they're like, oh, I tried power thing and nothing came, right? This work is hard. This work does require you to think differently. It does require context, right? What advice do you have to an organization who said, like, I've tried power sharing. I didn't notice a shift in how we did things. But what would you say to that? 
I like sarcastic answers, which is like, well, try to lose 20 pounds in a night and see how that works for you. You know, it doesn't like change is slow. It's painful. It requires daily, regular, mindful habits. It's exhausting. Um, and it's not about losing weight, but I'm just, I mean, that seems like a relatable thing to most people is that we try all the time to change and we're always changing as humans. And that, you know, understanding the process of change is scientific almost, right? Like there's the contemplation, pre-contemplation, there's like, and then there's all understanding what the cycle of change is will help you understand why change might be slower. But also for me, my desire for somebody else to change is not the place to start. <laughs> I have to change myself. So I might need to think about what is it what is it that I'm expecting that this person need like has to do or should do that I need to change? What's the serenity prayer? I'm pretty sure someone on this call knows the serenity prayer, right? Um, and it's just really about understanding what's within your locus of control, right? So as a so if I'm a frontline staff person, I might not be able to get this parent to work fast enough to reunify because I haven't really considered all the context. But what can I do today? To, to start unpacking beliefs about that, you know, like the person, what do they believe of themselves? What are the challenges that they're feeling that are real or perceived? And then how do we work through those things? And a lot of that requires time. It requires patience. It requires consistency. All of these things are fundamental values of like building trust too, right? Um, and that change is really slow and not always the people that are closest are always gonna see the change happen overnight. It's sometimes it's like the gap right? It's like the losing the weight, right? Like sometimes it takes some time to not see that person be like, oh, it's very visible. But the person that you see every single day, you're not going to see that change as visible because you're working really closely with them. So it's just being very mindful of that. And then um, at the systems level, if we're talking about systems change, I mean, just in looking at how systems change is incremental. And this is actually Amy Jaffe, one of the managers in taught me this when I was 18 because I was so frustrated because everything that I was advocating for made sense. I'm like, this should happen overnight. This should happen today. The minute I'm talking about it, it should be happening, right? And Amy, uh, being a public administration major, explained to me that change is incremental and that I have to start nicking away. You know, you can't eat a mountain in a night, so you got to just sl slowly chip things, chip away and and with more people, with more support structures that you put you surround like a family, the more people are helping to chip away at the mountain of barriers, right? So like if we, and if I'm doing this all by, I cannot be everything to everybody, but as I grow the team who's supporting this person, the more likely we're going to be effective in like creating that change together. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would invite that person to really examine where they're at in the stage of change because it absolutely is a process and so you know it may feel like nothing has changed but that just may be because you are at the beginning stages of change and oftentimes in the change process when we start to feel uncomfortable with whatever that change is we revert back to just how it always was, right? That doesn't feel, it's not, doesn't seem to be working. I'll just go back to the way that it's 
that it's been happening. And there's comfort in that, right? Also, I think sometimes when we are in the change process, uh, we start to understand what we will lose as part of the change. And that brings up some grief and loss that we may not even be realizing is happening that can interfere with us kind of moving forward in the change. And then lastly, I would think, okay, from my perspective, maybe it looks like nothing is changing, but have I heard from the people that I've invited to the table? Because from their perspective, it may feel like, actually, I feel like we are moving forward and we are getting somewhere. I may not see it in, in the bigger system that I'm working in, but they may um, be experiencing a change that I didn't realize. So I would invite them to really look at where are you really at in the stage of change? You may feel like you've done all the things, but you may still really just be in preparation for change before you've even actually taken action. And then also not only stepping back and observing that from your point of view, but getting others' points of view as well into that process and not, not be misinformed just by those stages of change that you have to go through, being uncomfortable, dealing with loss, to think that the change isn't happening. Those may just be those beginning stages as you start to actually break through and see um, the change really come to fruition. Yeah, Judy, I really like that piece, this idea of like, you know, this is going to be uncomfortable. You both mentioned that it's uncomfortable, but Judy, I think you said there's some grief and loss that has to come with with some of this, right? We have to say goodbye to a system that we thought was working. We have to say goodbye to systems and practices that feel comfortable and good to us. I think as individuals, we don't always like to feel uncomfortable, um, but I mean, that's how growth happens, right? And if someone, Madison, I, I like the weight loss analogy you had. Um, this doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to see the change in the mirror every day, right? As someone, myself, who's lost 116 pounds, there are still days I look in the mirror and I still think I see the guy who was 350, right? Like, that's I think that's just a great analogy for how this is going to look, right? You're not going to see it all at once, but six, seven, eight months, a year later, like, oh, I've made significant strides, right? And the same is true with the child welfare system. You know, I think of when I started doing this work eight years ago, like just to see where the system has gone since 2014 to now, you know, it, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that great, but I've definitely seen it over time, right? And I think that if we start to adopt this, like, over time kind of view and do that intentional CQI to be like, is this still working? What do we need to change? If it's not, I hope that we're going to start to see, you know, the system agencies at the federal, state, local level start to make some of those incremental changes, right? Because over time, small steps get us through that marathon. Um, and so I just kind of want to finish this with some final thoughts. I mean, if you guys could wave a magic wand today, you know, what is the one thing that you would change about how we operate as a system? That's a that's a hard question. It's a hard question, not because, um, you know, what would change, but there are so many things <laughs> that I would change. It's I think one maybe I'll take it from this perspective. One maybe small thing I think we could do a better job of in child welfare, and this is is going to sound kind of simple and and silly, but it really is to listen. We get so caught up in everything that we're doing and all the things we have to do, and especially post-COVID, like meeting fatigue, like all of those things, right, that we have to do and task-oriented, 
that we don't stop to really listen to what people are saying. And, and not just listening with our ears, but listening with our eyes, right? The verbal and the nonverbal communication. Like if we paused and were mindful to really listen to what people were saying and heard what families were saying, heard what youth we're working with were saying, I, I think we would respond in a different way. If we weren't sitting across the table from someone really thinking about, okay, what's next on my schedule? What information do I need to gather from them to make these decisions, to meet these timelines? but really just listened about how they are experiencing life in this system, I think it could be really uh, life-changing to the life of, of the system. Uh, because I think we have created a system that, that doesn't give people just that space to really hear from the people that are most impacted by the system. And so whether that's at a case level, whether that's at a systems level, um, I think we've gotten away from really just intentionally listening to how people are experiencing our system. Uh, and then by listening to that, really carrying that work forward and or ensuring that we're using our power to make sure that other people who are in other places of power can hear those experiences to really be able to make the change that is necessary um, overall for our system. So that's what I got. I could talk for days about other wishes. So if you find the genie that can give those out, I'd be happy to uh, talk to them as well. If I find that genie, I'll, I'll be the first to let you know. I have a couple of wishes too, uh, child welfare and otherwise. You know, I wish I'd have a, my Afro back because I used to have one. It was beautiful. Um, but Madison, what is, what is your one wish? You could wave a magic wand, find a genie, get fairy godparents, whatever. How would you, what would you do? I think if I had one wish, we need to care for one another, love one another. And like, and that seems like, that seems like just as simple as Miss Judy's like, listen, but I think like, at my heart, and I think the one of the reasons why our system is so broken is I don't think that we care enough about the people in our community. Um, and I think people care, but only to the extent that it affects them, you know? And I think it comes from individualistic belief systems and the belief system of like a meritocracy, right? Like those who work the hardest and do the best, like get all the things. And in reality, like, many people are being oppressed, many people are being harmed. And that I wish that we did, um, as we are being lifted up, and for me being lifted up and out of like growing up in poverty and being in the position that I'm in today, like try to bring other people along with you and as many people as possible. And so that our reach is um, exponential and our impact is more exponential. And so that's what I mean by, I think the whole caring for one another, you know, and not trying to cause more harm to our community and our people. Um, and not to say that there's like a us versus them. I'm talking about the collective we, the collective our, the collective, like I'm kind of visiting and revisiting like concepts of like um, 
trans uh, transformative justice and like thinking about how that's very community driven and it's around like how communities have been just harmed and that people harm each other, like hurt people hurt people. And so that we need to figure out ways to like heal our people and heal, heal our community so that we don't have to be in this situation, right? Where kids are being hurt um, physically or otherwise, or we're taking care of our people so that people have the basic needs to like care for their children um, when we have so many resources that are available, right? So it's just about like all of this, these pieces and, um, and you know, what's in it for me is that as the community, as our nation gets healthier and we're more happy and more well, the better we're all off collectively. Um, so I think that that's what, that's a big wish, but the wish is like that we're, we're caring more for one another. Hey, it's a good wish though. I mean, I think those are both great wishes. And you heard, it, you heard it here, folks. I mean, we talked about a lot of things this afternoon, today, this morning, whenever you're listening, we talked about a lot of things. You know, we need to listen and we need to care authentically, right? Not just to respond. We need to do it in a way that moves the needle forward. You know, we need to understand this process is hard and it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to feel crunchy, as I like to say it, but keep going. You know, slow and steady does win this race eventually. And we will win this race if we're walking it together. And remember, context matters. When we're working with young people, when we're working with families, understanding that they are the experts in their own lives. And if we go in there with the expectation that they also know what they're talking about and that they are going to be equitable partners, we will all get better together. So I just want to thank Judy and I want to thank Madison for hanging out with me today. I'm sure we could talk for many hours because they're both great uh, advocates, administrators, leaders. Um, but I want to thank you all for joining us this afternoon, this morning, whenever you're listening. Um, and know that there's a place and uh, there's a place for you to do this work. And we hope you'll join us for our next episode. Thanks. Yeah, this yeah, was great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Hi, Tony. Hey, Jamie. Great conversation. I loved hearing about the importance of trust and how um, building trust intentionally is really important. It may not just happen naturally that you really have to you know, do things to work toward that. And also thinking about change and how slow and painful sometimes it can be, but really staying the course and, you know, the changes will happen over time. Um, what stays with you from the conversation? Yeah, I mean, so additionally to those points, I mean, one of the bigger things that really stayed with me was like, we have to listen to people that we're working with, right? When we're power sharing, it's great that we'll be like, oh yeah, I heard that. But then like really listening is like, I'm gonna act on what you're telling me, right? And so that's so huge to me because I don't think we do a good job of that. I also think that we get so confined to like what they call boxes, right? Like this has got to be the way it looks like, you know? And so being understanding like power sharing is not going to be what we think it is. It typically will be better, right? And so just being open to what it can be or what it could be rather than what we think it should be. Because, you know, we might have the credentials and the degrees, but we're not experts in this. We're all still kind of learning as we do this work. And so being open and honest with the people that we're working with to do that work um, are really some things that like I'm going to take away from that conversation. But a little birdie tells me that you are going to interview some folks in our next episode. So what can our, uh, what can our friends in the audience expect to hear in that one? Uh, thanks, Tony. I'm really excited. I'm going to be talking to some parent leaders from New Hampshire and some agency folks there that have supported their work over the last decade or so. So really excited to be talking to them. Awesome. I 
definitely look forward to hearing more about that. And yeah, so we were just in Nevada. Now we're going to New Hampshire. My friend, we are coastal. And so if you like to hear what we're doing on no matter where we are in the country, give us a like, give us a follow on wherever you listen to podcasts and stay tuned because we're just getting started.